When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm okay. Got a really interesting show tonight. A historical episode kind of has a bit of a missing 411 vibe, and it's based on a piece of ephemera that we came across by accident. I don't know if by accident. Serendipity. Yes, it all started with a piece of ephemera we found in one of our digs through the local ephemera mines. We were deep in the ephemera mines. I think someone had approached me to do this story in the past. You know, they sent some information. I looked at it. I was like, yeah, that would be cool. And I just followed it away as one of those stories like, yeah, someday. Mm -hmm. But then we found this book and it kind of brought it right back up to the front. Before we get to that, I want to mention our Patreon, which is the best way to support the show if you want to help us out. If you like Strange Familiars, if you like the content we make and you want to get more, the best way to help us is to become a patron at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We do not one, but two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month for our patrons. On occasion, we do more. There are multiple tiers of support at Patreon, but whatever tier you go in at, you get that extra content, those extra shows and you help us continue to make Strange Familiars. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. The Lost Brothers of the Alleghenies. So this book was published. When was this book published? 1909 or teens or something. Around the turn of the century. Early 1900s. Very early 1900s. We picked it up because it had an interesting story, and we brought it home, and you started digging into the story even more. Did, it did not go the way I thought it was going to go. It didn't at all. While most of the story takes place in the mid-1800s, it really kind of starts back in the 1700s, in the early 1700s, with a man named John de Bert. Well, he was a, a French immigrant to the United States. They think French. I've also heard the, say Holland, but I'm thinking probably not Holland. It's probably some sort of bastardization of what it means to be Dutch around here. Mm. He's either probably French or French-German, Huguenot. So he's one of the really early immigrants to Pennsylvania. In fact, 
he's so early that he actually is the one who founds a fort, a trading post near the Juniata River. Yeah, that's kind of middle of the state. At that time, that's way on the frontier. Yes, in fact, they were the uh, first white settlers west of the Susquehanna River. Okay, so this is 1730s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was not a lot out there. This story, whether it's in the 1700s version or the mid-1850s version, all takes place in Bedford County, kind of close to where like Lake Raystown Resort is. Okay. That's probably the closest thing that someone might have heard about if they're from this area of Pennsylvania. Otherwise, you know, for everyone else, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's west of here and west again of Michaud. So for people who kind of have a vague map of Pennsylvania and, and where we are. So what was his deal? So he was, you know, he was a trader and not a, not the one with the T, the one with the D. <laughs> and um, because he was married to a woman of Native American heritage, they were pretty insulated from potential rivalries with Native American people okay. in the area for a while. But he and his wife and seven of his 12 kids were murdered by one of the local Native American tribes. Yeah, I think they said it was during the, the French and Indian War. Yeah, just at the start of the French and Indian War. Somehow, miraculously, five of his kids, three boys and two girls, survive the murder. They had 12 kids <laughs> in the on middle, the frontiers. In the middle of nowhere. At a trading post, essentially. Wow. It's right along the Juniata River, so I imagine that a fair amount of people went through there, but I'm talking a fair amount of people for a trading post in the early Americas, not like a fair amount of people generally. This kind of reminds me of like when you were a kid and you lived in such an area that if a car drove down the road, it was like a big deal. Like yeah. everyone would go to the windows. <laughs> we used to be able to play baseball and football in the road at the farm. I remember we just all day long, we just play in the road. Every now and then a car might come down. You just basically didn't have to worry about it. I bet it was even less so then. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. In the 1700s. In the sure. 1700s in rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. So somehow the kids survive, and I'm unsure of how old they are at the time, but they make it back to Virginia, which is where the family was from originally. One of them even returns later on and then is killed in another massacre. Wow. I would probably stay away. I was going to say, you think they'd take that as a message to stay out of Pennsylvania. Yeah, they didn't. But this family becomes a central portion of the story that we're about to tell. and So John DeBert's descendants. Descendants become a really central portion of this story. They must be a very unique family, and I don't know if it's some sort of residual luck that gives them these sort of supernatural powers, or the family's always had them, or... Oh, I'm intrigued. I heard supernatural powers. So we're going to jump from 1730s, more than a century later. We're going to jump to 1856. So now the, the, the former trading post on the Juniata River has been built up to an extent, but it's still a pretty rural area. And this is Pavia, also known as Lovely, Pennsylvania, in Bedford County. It's a nice name. Isn't it? it makes it's me want to visit to Lovely. lovely. On the morning of April 24th, 1856, the second part of our story starts. So the story goes that Samuel Cox heard his dog must have caught something in a tree, and he's thinking, oh, this is a great chance to, I better go dinner. Yeah, yeah. I better go get dinner. Yeah. So he heads out after what he hears in the tree. Unbeknownst to him, 
his five and seven year old son follow him, though he doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. So he starts kind of following sounds and is moving through the forest, and it's taking him longer than just a tree right outside the house kind of thing. He's on the trail. His kids follow him unbeknownst to him, and so when he returns several hours later, his wife says, where are the kids? And he's like, well, they weren't with me the whole time. And then they start to panic because they realize that they've been missing for hours now. Not good in 2022, really not good in 1856. Yeah, and they live in an area with lots of waterways. They live on a mountain, and it's late April, but it's late April on a mountain in rural Pennsylvania, which can still be quite snowy. Very cold. Very cold. Yeah. And while these kids, I guess, are probably more competent than five and seven-year-olds are today, more worldly-wise, I would assume, outside, it's still not a great place for little kids to be. No, five and seven is too young, no matter what era we're talking about. So this starts a massive search for the kids. Luckily, members of the town are, are very interested in helping them find their kids. And so they start lighting fires so the boys will see them all around the woods thinking they'll go towards them. Mm-hmm. At one point, they see footprints in the snow. They think they, they know where they went, but they can't find the tracks anymore. To me, it always seems impossible why you can't find little kids. Like, are they really on the move that fast? Have they, have they traversed that much land? Like, how can they get away from you? Are they, are they scared so they're hiding somewhere? Are they being quiet? Like, how is it that what eventually swells to be 500, then 1,000, and then they're purporting that there were 5,000 people at one point? Were there even 5,000 people in the area to go Well, see, that's them? what I wondered about because we looked today and they said in, in one of those little counties, there were only 285 people there today. In one of the townships. Yeah. Yeah. yeah today there's only, yeah. So there, that might be a slight exaggeration, but there was a lot of people helping. All hands on deck as far as who was there without mm-hmm. helping to look for these kids. So as the story normally goes, guess who they started to blame first? Well, given that it's an old time newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say the gypsies. Yes. And you know, we're always saying this and using the terms of the era. We yes, not mean. We, right. No offense meant by that. To we know, travelers or Romany people or we're just talking. And we you know, know that's an old fashioned name, but that is the name they referred to in the paper. And I also almost wonder too, if they really were people of it, if they were just people they didn't know, they just referred to anybody as gypsies. Certainly any Traveling people were gypsies, according to the old-time papers, yeah. So here's a new one, Um, another possibility of people who might have taken the children. You want to take a guess? Tell me. Catholics. (laughs) (laughs) Only in Pennsylvania. (laughs) There's been a a recent influx of Catholics in the area. Dastardly Catholics. And they had set up a boys' home. And um, they were afraid, some of the people in the town were afraid that the Catholics had taken the children so that they might become nuns. I guess they had no clue of what some basic tenets of Catholicism were, (laughs) including the fact that little boys can't become nuns. You never know what they're hiding under those habits. (laughs) That's true. We have an article from the Bedford Inquirer, May 2nd, 1856. 
Now, there wasn't a newspaper published the day after the kids went missing. So the first time that this newspaper was able to publish something after they went missing is a week into the search. Lost children. On yesterday, Thursday week, two small boys, children of a Mr. Cox, a very worthy man, one five and the other seven years old, living at the front of the Allegheny Mountain in Union Township in this county, straight away from their home and have not yet been discovered. They left in the morning, and their absence was not noticed for a couple of hours after. The father started after them, but could not see or hear anything of them. This is a very wild section of the country, and in places, almost impassable from thickets of trees and bushes. Nearly every day since, there have been from 500 to 1,000 people, men, women, and children, from that portion of Bedford and Cambria counties, on the hunt. They have a surveyor along, and hunt in circles. They have examined the country for many miles. On last Monday, about 10 miles from the parents, in the wilderness, children's tracks were discovered, but they could not be followed but a short distance. The children may yet be alive, as there are a great many chestnuts and beech nuts from last year on the mountains. The most cause of fear is from wild beasts, as there are wolves and wildcats in that region, and at this time of year are said to be quite ferocious. The people are quite excited and determined not to give up the hunt until they are found dead or alive. Some of the citizens of this place are talking of joining the hunt, and we hope a large party may start out as the people there are almost exhausted. This is truly a heart-rendering occurrence. The following letter from Mr. William Griffith, a kind and benevolent gentleman of Union Township, was addressed to Mr. Fred Beagle of St. Clairsville on last Saturday. Mr. Beagle, please urge upon all who care to join in the search for the lost children at the head of George's Creek. It is now pretty certain they are on the mountain beyond King's Cabin, and unless greater numbers engage, it may take till next week to find them. I trust that it is not to be supposed that there is so little humanity to the people of our county as to suffer those children to linger out a nine days' death by starvation. Arouse the community to search day and night till they are found. Yours, William Griffith. Since the above was in type, we received the following letter from Mr. Griffith by the Wednesday evening's mail. Lost children, not found yet. The two sons of Mr. Samuel Cox, one five and a half and the other seven years old, who were lost in the woods in our neighborhood on Thursday morning last, are not yet found. Business is entirely suspended and all the community engaged in the search. The assistance of our friends at a distance is earnestly solicited. Mr. Over will please publish the above and oblige William Griffith, April 31st, 1856. So that brings us to William Griffith. He played a part in this more than just writing the newspaper. Yeah, he kind of acts as like the liaison between the family and the newspaper. He's the one that's sort of imploring everyone to search. In fact, I read articles with people that were searching for a few days and were exhausted and needed to get their own spring crops in the ground for their own kids to potentially be able to eat in a few weeks. And the one man said he went home and thought it over and then thought, what if one of my kids was out there and went back out and said, we'll just deal with it. You know, we're going to try to find these kids. So many stories of kids going missing at this time. I guess it's just uh, a time period where people are just not able to watch their children with a sort of eagle-eyed efficiency that we seem to now. They just... I mean, yeah, it was a different There wasn't there an assumption that anything was going to befall them or that they had the capability to live within the elements and so they were given more free reign. 
So things turn, and these sort of uh, newspaper wars start happening. Yeah, William Griffith becomes sort of the, um, the rallying point as one newspaper tries to defend his honor against the other. They call them Know-Nothings, which was the party, like sort of a, a working-class party at the time. It, they're not called Know-Nothings because they didn't know anything, but because when, when asked, that's how they were supposed to answer, that they knew nothing about uh, okay. it. Right. So that's where, where that comes from. But they were also militantly anti-Catholic, and so there's this anti-Catholic contingency that is uh, spreading. In Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, it seems odd, right? Uh, so... Uh, that becomes an element of it as well. But also, as is the case, usually when children go missing, at some point they decide or someone decides to look towards the parents. And so there are some, um, let's call them eager zealots, I, I suppose, who uh, actually go in and rip up the floorboards of their house looking to see if maybe the children are underneath. So there's there's a paper that is run by these know-nothings or somehow? I think that's probably like, you, you know how even... A hundred years ago, certain papers leaned one way politically or not, mm-hmm. and and then they they use every single episode of anything that comes up to right. fight with the other paper about how they're actually in the right. And I can't believe that the other editor were possibly print yeah. this. Yeah, ridiculous. you see that even in the, like the Wild Man articles during the Civil War, they'll be like, you know, oh, it's probably you know a Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, or something, whatever way the paper leans, and so they're holding. Griffith's in question because he's a Catholic and he's the one drumming up, getting everyone to try to go look for these kids. They're holding another paper, I guess, or the same one, whatever it is, is holding the parents in question, saying, you know, maybe they did the kids in. Yeah, and so these vigilantes go to their house. Wow. They tear up the floorboards. Tear up the floorboards. They look around. They think they can find the kids. Of course, they don't find anything. So as we move away from Mr. Griffith, I say, remember his name. Yeah, we're going to circle back to him. So the parents bring some other people in, some interesting people as well. So after a week, everyone's pretty desperate. And, you know, this is a lot of times when opportunists arrive. Right. Or, you know, well-meaning folks. It depends on... As the story gets around, and it it was probably picked up from other newspapers, a few towns over and so forth, Mm -hmm. and spread around a bit. There's an unnamed African-American man who I suppose, from what I read, was probably a water witch. Okay. He used peach twigs and could find water, and he was pretty confident that using the same techniques, he could find the kids. So he's going to use dowsing, essentially, to find them. Yeah, to try to find the kids. Interesting. That's very interesting. So he sets out and is unable to find them. Okay. Pretty much as soon as he leaves the woods, another woman who sort of claims to be a psychic, who they called an old Somerset County witch... Neither of these people is named in the articles, unfortunately. I'd love to look up more information about them. Yeah, so we, it's just a man and a woman that, that both try their best. They basically say that both of them get lost before they're able to even find the kids. They get lost themselves. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now we're working between a week to 10 days after the kids are missing. Everyone's pretty desperate and not overly hopeful at this point. Yeah, the fact that there was still snow on the ground in April, it's too cold at night. I know it's, you know, April, you think spring, but you don't want to be out at night in the mountains without a fire or a good sleeping bag or something to keep you warm. So now we're at 10 days after the kids go missing. And there's a farmer who lives about 12 miles away, and his name is Jacob Dibert. So Dibert sounds like DeBert. Yeah. So he is the grandson or great-grandson of the family that was massacred there 
150 years previously. So here we have a connection to those first settlers in the area. And a very, what I would think of as a, a, like an incredibly potent emotional area for those things to have happened, particularly in his family. And then the fact that he still lives there. Right. Considering a good portion of his relatives were massacred and then, you know, they moved to Virginia, so come back, another one is killed. It would make me a little hesitant, <laughs> I think, to move to that area. So he has a dream, and he's not, you know, a water witch. He doesn't have any particular um, interest in the supernatural, occult things of any sort. But he has this dream, which sometimes is referred to as a nightmare, and it's so uh, detailed. It talks about him being on a trail, passing a dead deer, and a little shoe, and a stream with a fallen log. And it's so detailed that he tells his wife about it, and he says, I think this is where the boys are. He has no relation to them. He's never met the family. He wasn't on the search. He's heard about it in the papers, but that's his only real connection to it. And he doesn't think too much of it, but then he has a dream the next night. Same dream. Same dream. Passes the dead deer, passes the little shoe, passes the stream with a fallen log bridge, passes a birch tree with roots in a semicircle, and he says, that's where the boys are. So he sees the bodies in the dream? Like he actually sees them? He sees them. Okay. So his wife said she think because she's from that area, she thinks she knows where he's talking about. It sounds very familiar to her. So she gets her brother-in-law to go along with him to start a search. So his brother-in-law, Harrison Wissung, he's a little bit skeptical. I mean, it does sound like a totally bizarre sort of... As anyone would be at any time. Hey, I dreamed of something. We need to go in the woods and look for what I dreamed about, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how you would you would approach like, okay, yeah. sure, let's go. So interestingly enough, that ties in with the next patron episode. You guys want to hear that. Anyway, we can continue with this. Sorry. So they take off. They start to see everything that he saw in the dream. First thing they see, dead deer on the track. Mm-hmm. Then they see the little worn shoe. Mm. Then they see the the fallen log that acts as a natural bridge to cross the, what I assume is probably part of the Juniata. Or a, a feeder creek. Or yeah, something. a feeder creek to it. And they see birch up ahead. They are the ones that find the boys. Exactly where he had dreamed them. So, I'm, getting, like, I'm getting chills thinking about it. So, you know, I, a lot of times I try to put myself in the place of these people, you mm-hmm. know. I can't imagine how eerie that feeling must have been as you're walking and you see the dead deer. Mm -hmm. And you know that. And you must get a chill. You must get, I mean, I'm getting a chill right now just just imagining it. And then you see the shoe. They don't say if the shoe corresponds to the children. In fact, they kind of get the impression that it it doesn't. It's just something he sees. Just a marker along the Mm -hmm. way. And then you see this log crossing the creek. And then you see the birch, and your heart must go to your stomach. Because you want to be wrong. Right. Or you want to find them alive. Uh, At this point, it's you know close to two weeks. Yeah, so you find them. Yeah, and unfortunately, they're deceased. Right where they were in his dream.
So 50 years after the deaths of the little boys, they gather enough money for a monument for them. Okay. And every year, and I'm not sure if they're still doing this, but for years and years and years, every year people gather, they go over the stories, they talk about Jacob and his dream, they talk about the two little boys, and they have sermons, and people basically just kind of talk about this time that is so incredibly important in this little, in the history of this area. Sure, yeah. People love the story, and they tell it again in the newspaper, and this is from the Everett Press, which is a local newspaper from 1906, where they decide to tell the whole story over again for everyone. Okay, so this is 50 years later. 50 years later. The time they're putting on the monument. Yeah. I thought it was such a well-written account and does so much to really sort of set the tone of what it must have been like to be in that area at that time that I thought we would just read it. To the stranger who happens along the wild country roads, and there are wild country roads in Cambria and Bedford counties, even to this day, It will be apparent how it was possible for two youngsters of such tender years to get lost in the mountain and waste away their lives while wandering about in search of home, food, and parents. If the stranger has been in Bedford County in the vicinity of Spruce Hollow more than 24 hours and has driven one of these mountain roads, it is safe to assert that he has thought of the story of the Cox children. If he has much passed the 50-year mark on life's journey and has lived east of the Mississippi all his life, He will recall the exciting incidents of the 14 days the two little ones spent in the mountains before they were found. Perhaps he'll drive along, musing upon the grandeur of the scenery about him, and wonder why the mountain's fastness could be so beautiful, yet so cruel as to claim without cause or reason two young lives. His horse may also muse and go slow that night makes it necessary for him to put up at one of the many comfortable farmhouses near the scene of the Chicago's children's most unfortunate and pathetic episode. He'll be received with a hospitality which rivals that of the famous FFVs. I'm unsure what, re- what that is in reference to. His horse will be put up in a warm and well-built barn. He will be giving a tempting supper of plain and simple foods. After the evening meal, if he'll smoke, he'll be invited to pull his chair up to the kitchen fire, light his pipe, and mingle its fumes with that of the hospitable white-haired host who has just married Martha about the time that the Cox children strayed off into the mountains. He'll be told this story, which is related to all willing listeners who visit these parts. Yet this is a wild old country here, and was still wilder when my father's father came to these parts from the pioneer Dutch settlements of the state about Lancaster. No, I don't just know whatever made him select this barren mountain wilderness as a place to rear his children. Probably the freedom suggested by these wild mountain peaks and thundering streams had captured him, body and soul, about his life in the rather cramped quarters of the fatherland. Whatever that reason was, I know that his sons after him and their sons after them have been wedded to this soil, and methinks sons and sons after us will find Bedford County with its rough and simple life good enough for them and theirs. Yes, I recall the incident of the Cox children quite distinctly. I was a robust boy of 19 who had just assumed the cares of a household. I remember the Coxes, Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Cox, had been married in Johnstown a couple years before and had lived there until two little sons were born to them. They went out west, I believe, to the state of Indiana in 1851. Things weren't the same there in that low, malaria-breeding country they soon found out. The two youngsters sickened and almost died. The parents lived for those boys alone and hurried back to the life-giving air of the Alleghenies to nurse the youngsters back to health. They took a place over here in Spruce Hollow, which seemed as though nothing but rocks would grow on it. The mountain air did for the boys just what the parents had hoped— They were growing strong and robust and were bright and sharp as crickets. George, age seven, was the elder. He had dark hair and blue eyes. 
Joseph, his junior by two years, had locks of lighter hair and eyes of gray. Both youngsters, probably on account of their illness in the West, were rather small for their age. They were the most brotherly of brothers, each seeming to delight in each other's company. George always had such care for Joseph that as they went from place to place, he led the little fellow by the hand. The Coxes were well thought of over the country, and their two little boys were the pets of the community. 24th day of April, 1856, was a Thursday. The dawn of the spring day was unusually gray and chill. I remember how the cold north wind cuts through me, warm, clad as I was when I joined the frenzied party of searchers that day. The Coxes breakfast together at their usual hour. They were at the table, father, mother, and two children, when the family dog began barking over in the woods little ways. Mr. Cox remarked that the animal had evidently treed a squirrel, and that if he continued barking until breakfast was over, he would go out and bring the chattering mite back for dinner. The barking did continue, and Mr. Cox shouldered his gun and started off into the woods, leaving his wife and children at the breakfast table. He didn't get the squirrel, and returned to the cabin by a different route from the one he had taken. When he got home, he casually inquired for the boys. The mother hadn't seen them after they left the breakfast table, and a look about the little clearing around the house soon made it evident that the lads had attempted to follow their father in the mountains after the squirrel. The parents, in the wildest alarm, began a search for their children, taking in as much of the vicinity as they regarded it was possible for the little fellows to have traversed in that short of a time. They found no trace of them and hurried back home, hoping and praying that George and Joseph had returned during their parents' absence. This hope was soon blasted. They made their loss known to their nearest neighbor. The news spread like wildfire, and while many hastened to the mountain to take up the search, still others hurried up by foot and on horse from farm to farm, enlisting the aid of others. The necessity of immediate action was seen by everyone and acted upon as quickly as it was seen. Plowmen unhitched their horses in their furrows, merchants closed their stores, Mechanics threw down their tools with a common impulse, and with the thought of two sweet little children alone upon a cold, rugged mountain with nightfall fast approaching, burning within them, hurried for the vicinity of the Cox home. That first night, fully 200 voices rang out over the woods as beacon sounds to guide the little ones to shelter and safety. All through the dark hours, each minute bringing a more severe blast of cold, the search was kept up, and so thoroughly and systematically was it done that by morning every foot of every plain, hilltop, and ravine had been carefully gone over, but not a trace of the lost children was found. The parents, long since worn out with excitement and grief, had gone home. Continual streams of kind-hearted neighbors poured into their little dwelling to comfort them, but could only look on in silence and weep. Another day came, and the search was continued without success. Night fell again and was turned into day by the many beacon lights which searchers kept going on the hills, but still no success. The parents were heartbroken and had given up all hope of ever seeing their children alive again. News of the Bedford County horror had this time spread itself all over the state, and from every section of the country, additional searches were arriving daily. It is said that fully 5,000 people were at one time engaged in the hunt. For hours, without food or sleep, these willing people trudged the mountain over, tearing their own clothes in the brambles, scratching their hands and faces on briars, but never complaining, thinking only of the two little babes. As in the somewhat parallel Charlie Ross case, you'll remember that because we talked about that previously. <laughs> the Strange Familiars uh, Lost Charlie Ross episode. There arose the heartless accuser who intimated that the parents had murdered their own children. I remember him well and the indignation of the thousands of people who heard his accusation. He got away from Spruce Hollow with a few kindred spirits just in time to avoid a coat of tar and feather, if not a lynching. 
giving the woefully lame reason that the parents had killed the little ones with the idea of securing money from compassionate neighbors, this false accuser insisted upon taking up the floor of the Cox cabin and digging at several places where the family's supply of winter vegetables was cached. He vanished from the scene almost as quickly as he came, but not before he had wrought terrible havoc upon the hearts of grief-stricken parents. It was one day, shortly after this terrible accusation had been exploded, that one of the most promising clues of the entire search was found in the shape of tracks of the children in the sands of the mountain, about ten miles from the Cox home. Ten miles! The news of finding these tracks spread as rapidly as had spread the news of the loss of the children, and soon hundreds of searches had gazed on marks which were unmistakably those of little shoes that had started off again with fresh enthusiasm. Their high hopes were soon dashed to the ground, however, for the tracks lost themselves in the depths of the forest, and the faithful hunters were more discouraged than ever. During these three or four days, which had elapsed since the children wandered away from home, the search for them had been carried on. Each day it had been the custom to appoint a captain to direct and lead the work. Like skirmishers, the vast party was thrown out across the mountain and proceeded carefully, scanning each foot of the way, looking at the base of each tree, and investigating each nook and cranny which might offer the children shelter from the spring's cold and rain. These careful efforts should have been attended with some results, but were not, and the minds of some of the searchers began to turn to witchcraft and sorcery, commonly believed in those days as the only way left to be tried. Coxes were opposed to all forms of witchcraft, and their neighbors and sympathizers who were helping in the search respected their wishes that more sensible methods be pursued until every effort to find the youngsters had proved unavailing. Then they hunted up the dealers and the things of the future. I like that phrase. <laughs> An old man who lived in Morrison's Cove not far away had established a reputation as something of a magician and that he had been able to locate water with a peach twig. He was confident that he soon could lead the way to the lost children, but the peach twig refused to work and he had to abandon the search in favor of an old Somerset County witch whose spells and charms were said to be able to sway the country for miles around. With mutterings and motions, she started hobbling up the mountain on her staff, a whole crowd of people at her heels. On and on she went, resting here and there and claiming that she was on the right road and that she could already see the lost babes. Eventually, she was forced to admit her deception and say that she too was lost in the mountains. Those with her lived in the locality, got her to the Cox home, and then sent her on her way. It was on the tenth night after the children were lost that a hand unquestionably stronger than the human hand was stretched out to help the suffering Cox family, who had long since felt certain that their little sons were dead, but could not reconcile themselves to the tots lying in an unknown place in the mountains, the probable prey of wild animals. The supernatural influence worked through one Jacob Dibert, who lived some 12 or 13 miles away from the Cox home. He knew little or nothing about that section of the mountain and had taken no part in the search for the lost children. On the tenth night, however, he dreamed that he was out on the mountain alone looking for them. In his dream, wandering, he came to a dead deer. Further on, he came to a little shoe, and next he came to a large stream over which, at one of the narrowest points, a fallen tree had made a natural bridge. This, in his dream, he crossed and entered a little ravine through which a small brook tumbled down from a mountain gorge. Out along this stream, Mr. Dybert dreamed he wandered until he came to a large birch tree whose roots spread themselves about in a semicircle, and in this semicircle, lying on the very edge of the brook, the dream figures of the lost children lay cold and still in death. Mr. Dybert was not a superstitious person. He placed no confidence in this strange revelation. He did, however, talk to his wife about the matter and learned that she knew of the place in the mountains near the Cox home, which would fit this description of the place he saw in the dream to a nicety. The second night, he had the same dream, each little detail of the search being repeated. 
He was more impressed than before, but still hesitant to tell his neighbors about the dream for fear they might declare him crazy. And the third night came, and with it the same dream. He came upon the same hollow, passed again the dead deer, saw again the worn shoe, crossed the creek on the same fallen log, and entered the same ravine where the mountain waters tumbled down, and just as surely again came upon the thin, emaciated bodies of the two children lying in the semicircle of the big birch tree roots. The dream could no longer be disregarded, and he arranged the next day to start for the home of his brother-in-law, Harrison Wessing, some twelve miles away, which was in the locality in which the dream seemed to say the children would be found. His brother-in-law skeptically listened to the story of the dream, then started to pick its possibilities to pieces. He said there was indeed a place like the one described some five or six miles from the Cox home in the very heart of the mountains. He said, however, that such a thing as the children having traveled that far was ridiculous. For a long time, Mr. Wissing tried to dissuade Mr. Dybert from following the behests of his thrice-repeated dream, but failing in this, reluctantly consented to guide him to the place he knew of as the one seen in the dream. On the morning of the 8th of May, 1856, 14 days after the children had been lost, Mr. Dybert and Mr. Wissing started out to find them. Mr. Dybert directed the course from his dream scene, and Mr. Wissing accompanied him for fear of his becoming lost in the mountains. The first favorable sign of a particular note was the dead deer lying in the two men's path. Further on, they found the little worn shoe. The creek with the fallen tree across it proved to be Bob's Creek, and over Blue Ridge they went and into the little ravine, just as Mr. Dybert claimed to have seen the way in his dreams. Gradually the country became more open until the pair could see a quite distance ahead. This, said Mr. Dybert, is just like I saw in my dream, and if my dream is true, we will soon be at the place. Do you see that tree with the broken top on the edge of the stream? If my dream is true, that is the birch tree, and the boys are relying at the root of it. The tree was indeed a birch tree, and at its base, in the semicircle of roots, did he find the worn and emaciated bodies of the two lost children. The little bodies were found about 11 o'clock in the morning, and the news had spread itself the country over by night in a steady stream. Interested people journeyed to the scene of the find. As each one arrived, he took a position as near as possible to the dead children and solemnly awaited the coming of the grief-stricken father. The father had to be assisted to the place, and once there, he bent over the little forms and wept bitterly. Physicians who saw the remains said the children had died of starvation some three or four days before they were found. They had evidently wandered very far. Their clothes were worn to shreds, and their bodies were thin and wasted. Joseph, the younger one, had evidently died first. George, always his brother's protector, had taken a little smooth stone from the babbling brook close by, put his hat on it, and put it under his brother's head for a pillow. Soon after the finding of the bodies as was possible, a sled was taken to the place, and the remains taken to their parents' home six or seven miles away. They were kept there until the following Sunday, when they were buried in Mount Union Cemetery, their funeral was the largest ever known in that section of the state, being attended by about 5,000 people, many of them from Bedford, some from Johnstown, and still others as far away as Pittsburgh. The remains of both children were put in one coffin. Their resting place is marked with a modest little tombstone purchased with the $50 reward which someone had offered for the finding of the bodies, donated by Mr. Dybert and Wissing for that purpose. The little stone tells the pathetic tale of the children's tragedy in these words. George S., born March 30, 1849, and Joseph C., born October 29, 1850, sons of Samuel and Susanna Cox, wandered from home April 24, 1856, and were found dead in the woods May 8th of the same year by Jacob Dybert and Harrison Wissing.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. That hit a little harder than I thought it was going to. Um, wow. Yeah. I know these poor kids have been dead for almost 200 years and yeah. it's still, it's like, this is like every time we do one of these shows, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, brutal. Absolutely brutal. So here's one thing we haven't discussed yet. And this is something that I thought immediately upon hearing this story. If I heard this story today, a person has an exact dream. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, know exactly where you're going. And that's what I thought, too. I was like... Jacob Jacob Divert killed him, right? Yeah, he killed these kids. And then he's trying to be the hero, in mm-hmm. a sense. But it doesn't seem like that's what happened. I mean, the kids are found, and they're, um, there's no sign of foul play. I mean, this isn't like Jenny Beam, where she's found, and there's like pretty convincing evidence that there's somebody else involved in something right. happening here. This truly is the boys just got too far away. And I'd read in some of the other articles that they didn't think that it was possible for them to cross the stream. And mm-hmm. so they had focused a huge portion of their energy on just going up and down this, the one side of the stream. And if they had crossed, they might have been able to find them. Mm. But how do you know? How do you think a, like two little boys are able to travel yeah. miles upon miles? And it could be that they traveled a certain amount of miles the first day. And then the second day, you know, they probably lasted a little longer than... Yeah, it sounds like they died of starvation, not of exposure. So, which is miraculous in itself. Yeah, that nobody, none of the animals got to them or anything. And I'm sure there is a lot of symbolism in the dream, as far as the, the lone lost shoe, the dead deer, the birch trees. We could probably mm-hmm. make a whole other episode just based on that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, Polites would have a field day and say this was absolutely a missing 411 case, and there was something supernatural. I don't know if he even claims the missing 411 stuff is supernatural, but something uh, intensely mysterious about their disappearance. The mysterious thing here is the dream, not the disappearance of the children. If you really want to get into like woo-woo, missing 411, Bigfoot territory, the dog was barking at something in the Mm -hmm. morning. The father went out to find the dog. He got led deeper into the woods. The kids were following after whatever they go missing no one can find them despite everybody searching but i mean that's such a stretch i really think if you're looking for woo in this story i think it's in the dream oh and it it, it totally and completely shocked me when i realized that that's the only the only possible explanation is that that guy had a totally prophetic dream well, how do you mean like he, I, I just as soon as i read it i was like oh this guy killed him. and nobody was smart enough to look into this mm-hmm but he didn't kill them. 
It doesn't seem that way at all. And the story doesn't end there. That's the other thing. No, that's the thing that it was uh, fascinating to me. Uh, so I was reading a lot of the accounts. I like to read historically how these stories that are really important to a particular area take on like slightly different tints as ages go by. And so I was reading some of the articles on the anniversary in the late 1920s, basically right after what happens in our area with the Hex murder. And they kind of weave in, talk about um, Hex doctors and superstition, and then weave the story back in again. And everyone seems to just be kind of of the, the mind that he really did have a, prof- a prophetic dream and he was not someone who was a particularly like a, like a hex doctor or had what he thought of as supernatural powers. But apparently there's uh, something in the blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because in one of these articles, they talk about how this was not the only incident of a family member having a dream that saved someone. So Jacob Divert is drafted into the Civil War. And he dies? He dies in an area called Point of Rocks, Virginia, probably of dysentery. I was able to find uh, some pictures of him through his Fold 3 records. He and his wife end up having quite a few children, as uh, the people did previously in his family. He has five sons, and his oldest son was named Isaac. So I happened to be reading this article about the anniversary of the death of the little boys, and it says... No less remarkable is the story of a similar occurrence in the same region in 1887. This time, the lost wanderer was a young girl named Sydney. The hero was Isaac Divert, son of Jacob. One day in September of the year mentioned, Sydney became lost after she started out along the mountain paths to meet her brother, who was walking home from the railroad station at Portage. Searching parties went out again, but had no success until five days later when Isaac Dibert, after a dream, led them to a swamp at the head of Bob's Creek. This is his son. Has a dream Jacob about Jacob Dibert's son, Isaac, has a dream about another missing person, and they find her. Yeah. So I'm yeah. going to read this little story, and then I'm going to tell you who the person is that they fight. This is actually in the Philadelphia Times. It's from the 26th of September, 1886. So this is a full 30 years after the little boys go missing. Okay. And I'm not, if I might be saying this wrong. I th- my guess is it's Pavia, but maybe it's Pavia. I'm not sure. The town in, in Bedford County. Bedford County lady alone in a forest for two nights. Pavia is a village lying three miles from the foot of the Allegheny Mountains in the northwestern corner of the Bedford County. It's just four miles from Blair County line and the same distance from the Cambria County line. In Pavia lives Miss Sydney Griffith, a lady about 35 years of age. She keeps a store there and for a number of years was postmistress. She's bright and intelligent and is greatly esteemed by all who know her. On Sunday morning of last week, Mr. L. E. Griffith, her brother with whom she lives, took her in his conveyance to the home of her father, Mr. William Griffith. The latter lives near Portage in Cambria County. Miss Griffith made the trip because her father was ill and she wished to see him. Her brother drove back to his home the same day and promised to return for his sister on the following Tuesday. But he was late in starting on Tuesday, and Miss Griffith, becoming impatient, decided to set out on foot. If she had followed the public road, she would have met her brother. But when she reached a lumber road, which leads from the main highway up the mountain, she determined to take it and thus save a few miles of walking, the distance from her father's to Pavia being 11 miles. 
She accordingly took this road and plunged into the forest. The road is one that is scarcely ever used, and Miss Griffith found many obstructions in her path. Presently, she encountered a barricade of fallen trees which stopped further progress in that direction, and to the left opened a rough road which had probably been cleared by woodchoppers and bark peelers. She followed it, believing that it would lead her back into the road which she had just abandoned. She kept on the way until she had penetrated the heart of the cedar swamp, and then she suddenly discovered that she had lost the road. She became bewildered, and every attempt to find the path only brought her despair and deeper into the wilderness. Above her rose the giant cedars, some of them 150 feet in height, while in this dreadful swamp the underbrush is so thick that the two persons ten feet apart cannot recognize each other. Scarcely a ray of sunshine finds its way to the sod. No spot on the whole range of mountains is wilder. Miss Griffith soon became aware of the fact that she was lost. She knew not whether to turn, but she felt pretty certain that the roads were not very far away and hoped that she might be able to hear her brother as he drove through the forest. So she sat down to wait. The morning passed and the afternoon was half spent, but no sound given forth by human being broke the awful stillness. Then she resolved to make another attempt to escape. She struggled through the bushes and finally was gladdened to find a stream of water. This certainly was diverted to man's use and led to habitation. With revived spirits, she followed it, only to meet with disappointment. The stream emptied into the bowels of the earth, and sadly she returned to her post and resumed her weary waiting. The sun went down, and the shadows of night fell. She made a bed of leaves and prepared to sleep. But what if a cold, slimy snake should be attracted to her warmth and insist upon keeping her company? Or perhaps some fierce beast, at it for an evening stroll, might discover her and come to the conclusion that she would not be a hard lunch to take? Neither of these terrible things happened, however, and Miss Griffith was able to secure several hours of repose. On Wednesday, she gathered some bark and boughs and built a rude hut in which she took shelter from the rain which had set in. The day passed and brought no sight nor sound of living creature. The night was spent as before, and the unfortunate woman awoke on Thursday morning with a feeling of despair in her heart. Suddenly she sprang to her feet. She heard a shout. Silence followed. Could she have been deceived? No, the shout was repeated. She answered it and rushed in the direction from which it proceeded. It was not long until rescue and rescuers were clasping hands and making merry over the happy deliverance. Does it mention the dream in that? Or? It doesn't mention the dream there, but it's mentioned previously that he saw her in his dream standing there. So it said she was visiting her father, William Griffith. Am I to assume it's the same William Griffith? It is absolutely the same William Griffith who had spearheaded the efforts for people to get out to look for the little boys. So, okay. So William Griffith spearheads the efforts to find the Cox children. Jacob Dybert has this dream and ends up finding their bodies. 30 years later. Jacob Dybert's son, Isaac, has a dream of where to find the missing Sidney Griffith, who is the daughter of William Griffith. Yeah, and I checked the dates. Uh, he died a week later, so that would have been the last time she saw him. Saw her father. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, so I, once again, if you're looking for woo in this, <laughs> it's not this quote-unquote missing 411 story. It's these dreams. Yeah. It's these dreams these people are having. But... But wait, there's more. That's not the end of the story. Then I come upon another story of another Dybert dream that leads to 
finding a lost person. Same family, third time. I don't know how they're getting this information. So this comes from an article called Get Lost Was No Joking Matter in Pioneer Days. This is actually from 1952. This is the Bedford Gazette. They're talking to Henry Shoemaker, who is a Pennsylvania state folklorist. I don't know if you... We talk about Shoemaker often on the show. Okay, I, so I know him well. Great he's... folklorist, bad linguist. <laughs> so he was talking about several cases of people going missing on the mountains at this time. And there's one little section that says, The most amazing rescue of a person lost in the woods is that of Charlie Dybert's niece. She lost her way, taking a shortcut across the mountains to Johnstown, where she taught school. The night she disappeared, Dybert dreamed that she was at a certain site in the mountains, and having faith in his dream, he organized a search party and found her alive just where he dreamed she would be. So, Charlie Dybert is the grandson of Jacob. (laughs) Three generations of people who have found someone through dreams. The lesson I am taking from this is, if you get lost, call a Dybert. Yeah. If if I ever get lost, if you can't find me in the woods... Mm -hmm. Use your genealogy skills and find a diver. <laughs> we're going to Bedford County, and we're going to work backwards. Ask them to, to dream, to have a dream, because that is amazing. See, that that's the amazing part of the story to me. Those children wandered off, I think. I don't think oh, was, yeah. there was anything woo-woo about their disappearance. I think they, they went to follow their dad, they got lost, and they just kept wandering. Yeah. Over the course of a week, you know, I'm sure they did go miles and miles and miles. But the dreams are incredible. That's the incredible part of the story, and that there's multiple generations of diverts having dreams of missing people and finding them. Yeah, and it's not like they when they found the Cindy girl, she was dead. Right, she was still alive, and, and his niece was still alive, right? Yeah. Uh, Charlie Diebert's niece. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. What a treasure of stories, really. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sad. The first one is intensely sad that those boys lost their lives. Also, it's fascinating, too, that these are also the lucky few people who witness like a horrible massacre of their family and are able to survive and prosper. And maybe in something in, within that are imbued with this ability. I mean, you wonder about their connection to the land. To the land. Do they have like a hypersensitivity to this land? Yeah. Are they just deeply connected to this land? They've had that many generations of people literally giving their blood to that particular soil. Whether it was theirs by any rights or not, that's not really the issue, I think. Right. It's where they lived. It's where where they lived. Where they lived and where they died and where their ancestors lived and died. Amazing story. Absolutely amazing. There's a song by Alison Krauss that she does called Jacob's Dream. I haven't listened to it because sometimes um, music can kind of do me and in in a way that like Mm. literature doesn't necessarily i don't think i could listen to it without probably bawling the whole time so we will have to visit this monument that's out there yeah and i love reading all the stories year after year of how everyone comes together in this area they have sermons there and they would talk over the story and it really became almost like a holiday yeah well i mean it's an important marker Yeah, yeah it's an important marker for the community absolutely What an amazing story. There are very rare times when everyone is involved in a very altruistic way anymore in one event. For the listener, this story has exploded out of a book that's a super thin little volume. It's, uh, say, 24 pages, this little book, The Lost Brothers of the Alleghenies, that started this research. Yeah, that's written by a reverend who eventually, I think, lived in Mount Joy, Lancaster County. 
but okay. he grew up in this area. And this is sort of his recollections because he was, it might be the same person that's actually mentioned in that newspaper article that I read from the long one. This is how these stories for Strange Familiars develop. It starts with this little piece of ephemera we, we found, like I said, in one of our local ephemera mines. Found it recently. I picked it up and I showed it to you and you were like, oh yeah, get that, get that. that that's a story for the show. And we didn't know if, if we just end up reading this little book and that would have been a little segment. We didn't know what it would turn into. It would be interesting enough if it was just Jacob's dream. Right, right. And there's thought, like, everyone but, in the family seems to be saving people. <laughs> but Allison starts the research and she said, you know, every 10 minutes she's coming to me when she's doing the research. She's like, there's, there's more to it. There's more to it. There's more to it. And even like just the connection between his son finding the girl who's the daughter of the man who spearheaded the... Yeah, yeah that is so incredible. So I love the way these stories develop for Strange Familiars, and I would not be surprised if at some point in the future we find another story that ties back into this or into some of the people in this story, honestly. Yeah, and the, I thought it was also interesting in the articles that they they talk about Charlie Ross and that there's sort of like a, a general knowledge of these famous cases of children who have gone missing. It's not it didn't just start with Lindbergh. Right, yeah. I was told that. Like, that, that whole thing started, no, it started way before then. Yeah, there are a lot of people, a lot of people gone missing. It was that pesky dog that started this whole problem. Well, he could have been finding them in their dinner, actually. <laughs> could have been a really good boy. He could have been a good boy. We don't know. He could have been a perfect puppy. Mm-hmm. But if he wasn't, they might have needed some help with that. And where, Allison, would they go if they needed help training their dog? They wouldn't ask someone in a dream how to do it. No. No, they'd go to 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy at sithappens.us. They can help you with your puppy problems. Whether it's potty training, mouthing and biting, fear and nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, and more, Whatever your problems are with your puppy, they can help you. With their relationship-based approach to training, they help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. It's not about making your puppy perfect for you. It's not about you changing. It's about meeting in the middle. It's this relationship. You and your puppy become perfect for each other. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy has online sources like video lessons, a secret Facebook group, and of course, one-on-one options are available as well. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Before we get to our Curiosity of the Week, I would like to thank Ando B., for the PayPal donation. Thank you very much. Thank you for your help in making Strange Familiars. If you are interested in helping in that way, there is a paypal.me link in the show notes under every episode. You can click that and leave a one-time donation there. What is a murder bottle, Allison? (laughs) Uh, In essence, they're baby bottles that had a long tube that was not capable of being cleaned. Mm-hmm. So imagine like a typical bottle of today, a baby bottle of today. Imagine it glass for, for the time period. And then imagine like a thin rubber tube that leads to like a nipple end of it. Okay. 
but in the same way that it's very difficult to clean straws, it's very, it was very difficult to clean that area out, and there was no way to, to get it entirely clean. And so babies often developed bacterial infections from that that would kill them, and then they eventually just became they became known as murder bottles. Murder bottles. Wow. So if you see these glass bottles in pictures that have kind of a long tube that leads to almost like a, it's like a little pacifier nipple on the end of a, a bottle— It'll kill them. (laughs) (laughs) And they became known as murder bottles. Yeah, so... Wow. Grim. Yeah. Grim. I mean, that's really... like There's so many things to kill children at the turn of the century. You'd be lucky if you died from a... Are these twins? It looks like they're twins. And they're they're sharing a... a, uh, Well, the one has the murder bottle, but presumably they share the murder bottle. Oh, of course they do. They're twins, yeah. Yeah. 1907, I'm guessing. It looks about that time, actually, yeah. I'm getting better. Yeah, early 1900s. I'm getting better. It's two uh, children, infants, sitting in a chair, and one of them is holding a murder bottle. I don't know what happened to that kid. He could have been one of the few people whose mom was able to get something down in there and clean that out. <laughs> yeah, maybe he fought off the infection. Yeah. You weren't guaranteed to die yeah. from the murder bottle. Yeah, you see people all the time when we're doing research that somehow live to be 100 without ever having to take penicillin for any reason, to ever get, have an appendectomy, never need to have a bone set. I'm, I'm thinking this kid sucked on the murder bottle. His mom, like, dumped cop's baby friend down his throat <laughs> to help him sleep. I think this kid made it. And his brother. They both made it. I'm assuming that they're boys. Are they yeah, boys? they do look like boys. You know how you can tell the difference in older pictures? I don't know, because I know you said they're, they're breached and unbreached, so, like, even boys wear dresses. Yes, but it's the hair. Oh. Where it's parted. Oh, is where really? Generally speaking, mm-hmm. I mean these are not like a hundred percent rules, but right. Oh, I recognize the photographer. It's a York photographer. It is. Budorf. Budorf. I think it's Budorf but- or Budorf. Budorf. It's fun to say either way. <laughs> <laughs> well, this will be the curiosity of the week. Ye old murder bottle. I hope it's not in too horribly too bad of a taste. <laughs> I think these kids made it. Yeah, I, you know. I've good. I've I have faith in these two little boys. Yes. So. If you go to the show notes under this episode, you'll see a image of this photograph. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this. And we do have a few other curiosities of the week. Speaking of photos, you're adding more photos every day to our antique photo section. Yeah, I used to have my own section, but now I just thought, let's combine it, make it easy. Then people might have access to it when they wouldn't otherwise. So. Let people click one link. They go to our Etsy. They can get photographs. They can get strange, familiar stuff, etc. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. Also on Etsy is The Witch Cloud, Strange Familiars episode 300. We're coming up to it, coming up to it, but it's still available. You can get that on Etsy or the Stone Breath Bandcamp. When you buy it on Etsy, you get the hardcover book, you get the patch, you get the sticker that comes with it, and you get a download code. You can enter that download code and you get a free download. And it's much longer than a regular episode, right? Oh yeah, I think it's... Again, I keep forgetting to actually go back and add up and make sure I did my edition correct as far as the time, but I think it's over three hours of audio. So it's like a full audio book, but it's not a normal audio book. If I talk about a sound we heard, I try to clip the sound in if it came up on the recording. If I have an interview, I don't just read the text of the interview. I, I clip the interview in so you actually hear the people being interviewed. And then we did a bonus podcast with Soraya, and then you get some music from Black Happy Day. That's The Witch Cloud, episode 300. We're coming up on it. People have heard it already because we released it early. You can get it at our Etsy shop. Also at our Etsy shop is Department of Truth number 15, for which I did 
an exclusive variant cover. You can get that from our Etsy shop or you can get it from Riverbend Comics. Again, doesn't matter to us where you get it. We're in it together with Riverbend. Buy it from either one of us. Heck, buy it from both of us. (laughs) However you want to do it. Buy early and often. (laughs) I also added new prints to the Etsy shop. We have prints of the Mothman image from the cover of Department of Truth that I did and the Hans Trapp image I did for that episode, but it's been colorized. Of course, we have Strange Familiar's t-shirts there, Strange Familiar's stickers, and much more. Some people were asking about the long sleeve shirts because I mentioned it. People said, did I miss them? Did I miss them? No. We're still working on the design. As soon as we get the design set, we will put up a pre-order link. You probably won't be able to pre-order through Etsy. You'll have to pre-order direct from us, but we'll put a link up on our website. We'll announce it in the Strange Familiars Gathering group on Facebook. We'll announce it on the show. You won't miss it, I promise, but you probably do want to pre-order that to make sure you get one and get the size you want, and we'll have all the options and stuff available. Once we get the design set, we'll figure it out. As I was saying before, make sure to check out the patron show coming up. It's the continuation of We're Not Real, remember? That episode of Chad and I, the on-site episode where we went to Cador State Park and then Chad had the dream. We went back to the location of his dream and found something pretty interesting there. So you don't want to miss that. That'll be the first patron episode for January. It should be coming up really soon. So did the diverts help you get back out of the woods when you're (laughs) (laughs) If I get lost in Cador State Park, I've got real problems. I shouldn't be getting lost there. It's pretty pretty uh, easy to get in and out of that place, which makes it even more interesting that when woo stuff happens there, it's kind of like Site 7. It's not, you're not deep in the wilderness there. Check that out for patrons. Remember, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Collar Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. You can find more or purchase music by Stone Breath at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. You can also get the Witch Cloud there if you prefer to get it there. It doesn't matter whether you get it there or Etsy. You get the same amount of audio. You get the book. You get the sticker, etc. The only difference is you if you just want the download of the audio, you can just get the download on Bandcamp without buying the book. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. We are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.